is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 66. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 66 you're listening to, and it's brought to you by our friends over at Gearsluts.com, Focal Monitors, Universal Audio, and Audio-Technica. Thanks for being here today. I got a great show for you. Our featured guest today is a, a departure from our traditional music recording engineer, and it features Graham Hick, who is a master control engineer over at Minnesota Public Radio. Very, very different interview and very interesting interview. And after we concluded our interview, I have to be honest, I started to go over to... Uh, uh, KQED's website, which is the public radio station in the Bay Area, and I started to do a little job hunting because I thought, oh, maybe there's something there. And there's definitely some possibilities. So uh, a lot of possibilities I notice uh, for NPR in uh, Washington, of course, because I think that's where uh, National Public Radio is headquartered, if I uh, am correct about that. But it was a very interesting interview, and it really kind of uh, opened my mind up to the possibilities of audio in other areas beyond making music, of course, which I'm always thinking about. I don't know if you are. So uh, yeah, Graham Hick coming up. Very uh, fascinating interview. So we're not quite ready to do part three of our discussion with James Lindenschmidt. That will be on the next episode. Uh, what's happened since uh, James and I last spoke, all of the uh, Real Traps products have arrived. I unboxed them. I put them up. And my only regret really with putting them up was that I didn't call somebody to give me a hand because one other person could have made the process go by a little quicker. As a result, it was just, you know, it was a little challenging being up on a ladder kind of in very awkward positions, trying to get stuff to, you know, hang up in corners and stuff like that. Um, the Mondo traps are, are heavy. Uh, they're six inches thick, two feet by four feet length and width, and I employed the use of paint cans to hold them up while I got them into the wall. And then I took some pieces of foam uh, from the packaging that came to offset the real traps from, the or the Mondo traps in this case, from the wall a bit. So there's a gap. Uh, so they don't just hang right against the wall. There's a, a little bit of a space, probably about a one or one and a half inch space. So, yeah, and I used all the hardware that they sent. Uh, they sent some uh, molly bolts, uh, which, you know, really kind of hug on to drywall. I actually did not use those. I ended up using the drywall screws. That worked fine. Yeah, it's, it's a process for sure, and it's, uh, it looks really good. I'm really happy. Uh, it sounds really good in the room, and everything seems more even. Everything seems more quiet. I will say that for sure. So... That's that's a positive. The only negative I would say was that there's a little bit of some kind of off-gassing happening. And that must be some kind of chemical. Like, you know, it's like when you put in carpet or you buy a new rug or anything like that, any kind of piece of furniture that's been treated in any way. I, there's something definitely coming off these things. You get this many traps in this small of a room, and we definitely kept the window open for a few days. But... um other than that, 
It's fantastic. I did go through some pretty extensive testing, and we'll talk about that with James Linden Schmidt uh, in the next episode. But to sum it up, I definitely you know shot some pink noise into the room, uh, calibrated each speaker for level, did a lot of moving and replay, you know, putting speakers in different positions than they were originally in, and really got things to a point where once I reshot the room with the Sonarworks software that I'm very fond of, it's, I got to say, the plot looked better than it ever has. Is it perfect? No, it's not. There's actually still a little bit of a bump in the bottom end, and it's, it's probably around four or five dB in the just above 100 hertz area. And I would say that James had suggested I put some stuff on the ceiling and I kind of talked him and myself out of it, or I asked him if we could avoid it. And he said, sure. And, you know, he was accommodating me, but I think I should have listened to him in retrospect. I think that that's the ceiling is the cause of that bump because there's so much bass trapping going on in here. There's no possible way it could be coming off the walls. It just doesn't seem possible. So uh, that's it. Uh, we will continue that conversation uh, next week. And I think uh, I think it will be definitely informative to uh, share all of this stuff with you all. I think it, it'll be informative for me to put it all together. I think it'll be informative for you to kind of go, oh, that's how it goes in a small room in somebody's home. And uh, it's an odd room. It's probably unlike any other room, you know, any of you have seen. It's really strange, I got to say. But it works. Sounds great. Super quiet in here. Like, as I'm sitting here recording this, it's like, I can't really hear anything except me. Um, well, that's it. I'm going to quit rambling. Uh, let's get on to our conversation here with Graham Hick from Minnesota Public Radio here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, and thanks for doing this. It's been a long time since I've seen you, and the last time I saw you, I can't remember if Potluck Audio was Potluck Audio, or was it Tape OpCon? No, it would be Tape OpCon. I haven't been to a Potluck Audio, so it, it would have been one of the... Probably 2003 or four. I mean, when was New Orleans? New Orleans was 2002. And then, oh, maybe so. And then yeah. I and then I might have skipped a year, and then... So it might have been 2005. So yeah, it's been 10 or 11 years. Yeah. So it's it's been a while, and I think since then, you've kind of been on a journey... Yeah. In, in summation, um, where have you lived since then? In 2005 and six, I was working at Chicago Public Radio. I was a mass control engineer there, and I was also uh, teaching audio production at Columbia College and doing freelance work here and there. And I had been doing a lot freelance. Like uh, studio work? Like yeah, bands? recording and editing. Uh, some bands, but I also had a post-production client for a long time where I did books on tape. So it was a lot of voice editing and uh, recording. Um, and then I got a job offer at Oregon State University in 2008 and had just gotten married. Uh, and it was for the chief engineer position for OSU's, Oregon State University's uh, TV and FM stations run by the students. So I was basically the engineer. And they laid me off after four months. I moved my wife and I out there. We uprooted our lives, got a house, and had to go after four months. The guy I had replaced had moved into media production services or some other department like that. And he was vested in the union, and I was not it was six months to be vested, and I was only there for four, and he failed his six-month review because he had been in his new position longer than I was in mine. The union required that they put him back in his old position, and they required that they do nothing for me. 
So it basically, wow. it basically ruined me professionally, financially. My wife and I went to LA uh, and she eventually left me because things were so tough. So it, it ruined me. And I was pretty much uh, in the wilderness for about five years. So we went to LA. I had a friend who was working on Transformers 2. So I went from chief engineer to uh, runner, basically. Although I did get a screen credit as post-production sound assistant. Yeah, so that wasn't bad, but that didn't really turn into much. Uh, I did some Foley work on a couple little films, but I mostly worked for a equipment rental place, renting film and audio editing systems. So Final Cuts, Avid's, Pro Tools systems, configuring, building, delivering. I did some live recording through them. Or no, through a different company. Uh, there was some uh, Cheech and Chong's smoke fest or something out in, <laughs> out near San Bernardino. So I was on the side of the stage with a Pro Tools rig just recording all the different bands. Smash Mouth had gotten back together with some new singer. Uh, Slipknot was the closing band. Uh, anyway, and then that stopped working. And then I really, um, and I went to Oregon and I really had about 18 months of unemployment. I did, I did, uh, work for a uh, phone support company, uh, doing tech support for Xbox. But I mean, I was really, you know, hitting the lowest of the low. Uh, and then I was offered a job at a production company, but then at the same time, I got this job at NPR. So I, I moved, uh, to Minnesota and almost five years to the day of losing, my job in Oregon. I started up again in Minnesota, and I got my life back. Wow! Yeah, that uh, is quite a, quite a trek. Yeah, and it was almost it's this job is almost the same job that it was at Chicago Public Radio, although it's a lot. It's a much bigger operation, much more complex. We have fifty more transmitters than Chicago did. In Chicago, I was a board op for live shows. In addition to being a mass control engineer, here we have a whole separate group that does board hopping. We also are one of the only facilities that I know that actually has recording engineers on staff full time. So uh, I always wanted to be at a big facility. Um, and here I am. So this is a great job. What is a master control engineer do? We're the guys in the movies that you see at the very beginning in a room or an office somewhere and they look on their computers and they get some kind of indication that something's coming or something's wrong. And then they pick up the phone and contact someone else and you never see them again in the movie. That's what, right. we, that's what we do. So <laughs> that that's us. So like I said, I have 53 transmitters across Minnesota, uh, in Michigan, in Iowa, uh, in South Dakota and in Sun Valley. Uh, and when I started, we had Classical South Florida, which was three transmitters in South Florida and a whole different service. But we sold those off a while back. And that was good because those those transmitters in that network was really screwed up. And all the maintenance that we did was down there. So I am babysitting our network. We also are the American distribu North American distributor I guess just for the United States, we distribute the BBC. BBC. So anytime you hear BBC radio, that's coming through us. Um, we're also a production company, American Public Media. So we produce a lot of shows. So I deliver a lot of shows. No one really does satellite delivery or real-time recording in, anymore. We did that when I was still in Chicago Public Radio. We would, you know, if um, 
if some the splendid table was coming in, for example, I'd throw in a dat and I'd record it for an hour and then it'd be ready to go. We'd also record it in the computer. Now everything is file based. Um, so we upload shows to a file server uh, that everyone s- subscribes to. Then people go there and download the shows or they just simply show up in their systems and show up in their players. So I deliver a lot of shows, so I do a lot of quality control. It's interesting. There's a there's kind of a similarity there to podcasting. Like a comparison would be like, you know, I do the Working Class Audio podcast and I upload it to my file server. Right. Um, and then the then that shows up in the aggregators for the subscribers. Exactly right. And yeah. the only difference is, is that your subscribers are public radio stations across the country. Right. And there's also a difference in that our shows, all the shows are cut up into segments. So depending on how the stations want to take it. So, uh, you know, you've got like segment one and then there'll be a one minute break and then maybe segment two and then another one minute break. The the breaks we send up, they're just music beds. The stations can use them or not use them. You know, instead of using a music bed, they'll come in for a minute and do their own local announcements or whatever. So that is interesting. So the, so they're cut up. All the shows are cut up. And that's that's part of my job. Like I said, editing that stuff, uploading it. I also do a lot of production recording. So I record the spots for, you know, NPR is brought to you by blah, blah, blah. Or, you know, the, the marketplace is brought to you by TIAA Cref. I record and edit all that stuff. We all do. That's part of one of our tasks. And if we needed to, we could board up. We could do field recording. You know, we're, most of us have recording backgrounds. We're just now working in network control. And, you know, so there is some audio recording and editing every week. I have three recording sessions every week. So that's great to, you know, to get paid as a recording engineer <laughs> every week. It's not, it's not something that happens a lot <laughs> for a lot <laughs> of people. And then, like I said, we have a staff of recording engineers. We have two different music studios. Plus we broadcast Minnesota Orchestra, Minnesota Chamber Orchestra, uh, the Minnesota Opera, we have engineers going out every week and mixing that for air live on the spot, and then we broadcast that. Well, let me ask you something. You, you've you made records. Mm-hmm. You know what that experience is like. Mm-hmm. How does this compare, and how do you feel about it? Well, first of all, my joke is I got into recording because I didn't want to sit in front of a computer all day. <laughs> So that didn't quite work out. But I got into recording because it was a natural extension of my, I play music and I was always playing in bands and and I've always been interested in the technical aspects of stuff. When I was a kid, I did acting, but I also did tech theater. So sometimes I'd be in a play or sometimes I'd be building a set and running a spotlight. So I was always interested in the behind the scenes sort of stuff. So getting into music recording was a natural progression, but I made a decision back in college that I will take any kind of job I can get as long as I'm somewhere in my field. So I've I've always been happy to do voice recording, post-production. You know, I've been in radio for a while now. Uh, I've always been happy to do anything wherever the, there was a job that was somehow related to, to what I had gone to school for. Mm-hmm. It's It sucked during those five years where I was barely barely connected to my field. In fact, I was almost a mailman. I was applying to be a mailman in Salem, Oregon. I mean, I almost became a letter carrier, which was would have been a completely different kind of job. Uh, but you got to do what you got to do. So I, I like it. I it, And because I, I do, I have a lot of voice recording and editing background, and I do a lot of that here. You know, it keeps my chops up. Uh, I worked in a few jingle studios years ago, and I learned how to quickly 
get good sounds. I recorded some of the best musicians in Chicago. I've done some records and I always love that. And there's, and I'm always looking for opportunities here because like I said, we have two beautiful recording studios, but I'm also, you know, 42 going on 43. Uh, I've never supported myself off my music recording. I've always supported myself off this. So this has always kind of been a priority and, and I'm just not as hungry. There's a younger guy I work with. He's about 27. Uh, he's a jazz musician. He proposed a show and the show was picked up, and the reason he did it was so that he could bring in a different jazz group every week and record them. So, <laughs> but that's, you know, he's hungry. He wants to be in there all the time. I feel like, you know, I've, I've been in the studio. I've spent a lot of time in the music studio. I'll be back there again. You know, I always like to do my own home recording, although I'm not really set up for it right now. But to me, doing music was always the hobby, and then just doing audio, whatever it is, was always my career. It, yeah, it does. And, and I got to ask, does it pay well? I'm well compensated for what I do. Yes. Excellent. It wasn't always um, at other places. Uh, that's why I had two jobs when I lived in Chicago, teaching and working in radio. But, but up here, this is a totally different operation. I don't want to trash talk any organizations, so don't get me wrong. Uh, but up here, we're, we're, we're very valued and we're, we're well compensated. Yeah. Definitely. That's awesome. And the work is satisfying. The work is satisfying and the people are nice. I mean, what, what more can anyone ask for? You kind of combine the uh, the recording thing with a whole different set of, whole different skill set as far as, you know, the broadcast aspect of it. Correct. And the management of files moving around the country and a little bit different world. Like when I was doing movies uh, in LA for a little while, file management is all I did. You know, out there, uh, when you're working on a bigger film... Sound editors don't set up their Pro Tools sessions. That's what, that's what the assistants do, you know. Sound editors walk in to a Pro Tools rig that's already running, and they just cut. And then assistants are the ones that put the sessions together, get the audio into the session. Yeah, get the audio into the session, handle the files once they're done, deliver the files once they're done. So that gave me a lot of good experience on file management because when I'm doing production recording here, Every little spot that we do, it doesn't have a name. It all has a number, 01687-52625. And then there's three different deliveries that we make. So we're three different locations that we deliver to because we have three different types of, you know, one is one is online web advertisements. Another goes to our ENCO systems, which is all of our networks. They're run, all the unmanned transmitters are run off a platform called ENCO. So when I deliver files to ENCO, they go out to the, those network stations and it's all automated. And then Dillette is what we use here as our broadcast platform. So then I'm delivering to Dillette. So I have to keep track of all those numbers and all three destinations. And so working in movies, which is, and that's primarily what I did when I worked on movies. I mean, I did some editing, but I also did a lot of assisting. Uh, that's what I did, did. So it was, um, you know, it combines some of that. And then also, you know, like when they interviewed me, uh, one of the, I'm really good at interviews, at job interviews. And one of, one of the questions or one of the things I said, you know, they, I think they asked me something like, how does your recording experience relate? How does your studio experience relate to this? And I said, well, being in a recording studio, being a recording engineer, 60% of your job is client services. 
You know, any monkey can press buttons and make a recording. Not anyone can make a good recording. But 60, 70% of what you're doing is making your client feel comfortable, making the musicians feel comfortable, you know, creating an environment where you're there to help them. You don't, you don't fight your clients on something. If they want to put microphones on all the walls, you put microphones on all the walls. It's their time. They're paying for it. So my answer is here, producers and hosts and whatever are my clients. And... I'm helping them out and there for them in the same way that it would be in a studio. And that turned out to be the right answer. So, so that, you know, that from my recording experience is brought to here and how I deal with my coworkers and producers who don't have any technical ability and don't necessarily know what I'm talking about, just like in a, in a studio situation. So, so, yeah. so it is, so, you know, it's, it applies. The customer service that you do in a studio definitely applies here. You know, that's interesting. I have, uh, in my travels, come across some very smart and very uh, technical-oriented audio people um, in uh, radio stations in particular. Uh-huh. And I will say that there's a large portion of them that have the social skills of a rattlesnake. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, so when you tell me this, it's like you're kind of that hybrid of the very technical curmudgeon. Right. And the charming producer that can understand what the client's needs are. And I never put that together until you just said it in that uh, you you do need to have these people's skills, and that's you probably... absolutely do. I mean, they're not going to come back to you if they don't. If they if they you rub them the wrong way, you know, musicians are artists, and um, and 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 producers can you know, in radio, you know, they don't think of themselves as artists, but they're they have artistic sensibilities. They're doing something creative, and so those people are sensitive, and you need to make them comfortable, and you also need to make them confident in your abilities. You know, if you're always, if you're um and on your way through a session, you know, we, I used to work with a friend of mine a lot. We'd record bands together. We never let the client know when we were stumped. We would just kind of go off to the side and discuss it between each other and just let them know everything's okay, guys. You know, we're just going to take a few minutes. You know, once someone loses confidence in your ability, they're out of there and they're never coming back. Uh, or, and if someone feels like they're treated the wrong way, they're out of there and they're never coming back. And, uh, you know, you don't, you don't make any money that way. Um, <laughs> and, and I interviewed at Sony Studios, which used to be MGM, for a stage engineer job just through my contacts. This came, came my way and I went down there and I talked to him. And he said the kind of same thing that you said. He, he told me what he needed was a wizard, a technical wizard who can talk. <laughs> who can talk to other people. And what he had interviewed so far were technical wizards who couldn't carry on a conversation. And then when he met me, we agreed that this was a, a new area for me, being a, a, a mixed stage engineer, you know, which is just a recording, which is just a theater with a mixing board in it, and that I was trainable, but he had no time or resources to train someone. He needed someone to come over from 20th Century Fox or come over from Warner Brothers or come over from Universal, who had been a stage engineer for 20 years and knew how to talk to people. Um, mm. So I was, I was only half of it. I was trainable, but I wasn't the wizard that he needed. But I, could, I had all the, all the people skills and all the social skills that he needed. And then, and then what, funny enough, what ended up happening is somebody's nephew ended up getting the job. Of course. <laughs> of course. 
let, I wanted to kind of pigeonhole it a bit just sure. so we could kind of package this up verbally for people. It's like, you kind of have to be a wizard and a politician. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, you do. And if you could, and if you could do that, then, and oh, a wizard, a politician, and a psychologist. Yeah, you do kind of have to be a psychologist. And if you could do those three things in one package, man. Yeah. And if you can get to the point where you can pick and choose your projects, that's a good thing too. Because, you know, if if someone of a band or a group of people were to come to me and I don't relate to them or don't relate to their music, no matter how hard I, I try, we, we might not end up having a good experience uh, simply if I don't understand them, you know? So mm. if, if you can pick and choose, that's always a good thing. Of course, not everyone can do that. And there was a point where I just, you know, would record any, anyone who walked in the door and I had a lot of bad experiences that way. And then I decided, well, I'm not, I'm not earning a living doing this, so I'm going to be more picky. And, uh, and that's what yeah. I've, that's what I've been in post-production and in radio. I can't be picky. I got to work with whoever they throw me, but I'm used to, you know, I've been in audio in some form or another for 17 years professionally. So I'm, I'm used to all kinds of personalities. And, well, let me ask you this. How do you keep the job? Well, like this job or, or in yeah, general? Yeah. Your, your job. Uh, by remaining, particular. by remaining a nice person and remaining helpful, always willing to own. We're, we're kind of also first tier. We're, we're, we're in there 24 hours a day. So if someone has it, like if I was in this booth as a producer that I'm in right now and I have a problem, I would call my control room and ask one of my coworkers uh, to help me out. And if I can't, if I, and if they can't help me out, then they're going to own the issue and they're going to put me in touch with someone who can, because we have other departments. Sometimes it's a computer issue. Sometimes it's a, you know, computer network issue. Sometimes it's an audio issue. Usually it's something stupid. You know, they just don't <laughs> have a button open or, or a fader open or whatever. But if I can't solve it, it's up to me to get someone who can who can solve the problem. So you, you keep the job by being nice and being helpful. Um, and do you try to preemptively jump in whenever whenever you see a problem? No, because I don't like to create work for myself. So I, uh. <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, if I'm in a room and I see a problem, sure. But uh, if I hear of something... Yeah, no, I don't get involved with with something that doesn't involve me. Just because that's just my own personal. If 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 someone else, if they can figure it out on their own or or whatever. But yeah, I mean, I'll offer help when I can. But uh, but if somebody comes to you, you obviously respond. If someone comes to me, I respond. And if I see something wrong, then yeah, absolutely. Okay. Um, you know, and and this this particular place, you know, I told them when they hired me, I I don't do panic. I don't do I don't do screaming, and if anyone does that with me, I'm going to walk out of the room. And 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 that's kind of how the culture is here. Because you know what we're doing is important. What we're doing is my job is important to me. Uh, the content that we're producing is 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 important to to the producers and the shows and the individuals. But we're not saving lives. We're not performing brain surgery. We are creating entertainment for people. So let's keep it in perspective here. Right. You don't need to scream at me about something, and I don't need to scream at you. None of us need to panic. Um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, under, I'm under a tight deadline sometimes. I need to get something solved quickly. But, you know, we had, we had a historic broadcast that we did from Cuba, 
And I, you know, you know, it's a big deal when my boss, my boss's boss, my boss's boss's boss are all walking around the hallways at seven o'clock at night on their cell phones. You know that it's a big deal. But even then there was no panic. There was no yelling. There's no, we just got the job done and it's done. So that's how the culture is here. So it's really nice because I, I have been screamed at by people I've worked for and there's nothing I can do about it. And working in Hollywood and working in movies is one of the most insane, abnormal business environments I have ever been in. And I do not recommend it for anybody. <laughs> Honestly. Hey, I hope you're enjoying the interview here with Graham Hick on the Working Class Audio Podcast. We're going to take a little sponsor break with Audio Technica for a sec. I want to tell you about a new microphone that they have out, primarily geared for the drum kit for toms and snare drums. It's called the ATM 230. It's a hypercardioid dynamic instrument microphone. And here are some of the details. It's got a hypercardioid polar pattern, as I mentioned, which reduces pickup of sounds from the sides and rear and improves the isolation of the desired sound source. Handles very high SBL at close range. It's got a big, warm, low-frequency response with excellent attack. Low-profile design permits versatile placement around the drum kit. Rare earth magnet for improved output and transient response. Rugged all-metal design and construction for years of trouble-free use. And it includes an AT8665 drum mount and a soft protective pouch. Uh, they come as singles, of course, but you can also buy them in three packs, which is, of course, conducive for uh, miking up a set of drums. And uh, that's a new mic from Audio-Technica. The thing is, uh, like I mentioned, it's got an all-metal design. So if you have a drummer that likes to whack drum mics, this would be the mic to have on that drum kit. Uh, very small, so it's easy to place and easy to get out of the way. So be sure to check that out. The ATM-230 from Audio-Technica. And that's it. Let's get back to our interview with Graham Hick on the Working Class Audio podcast. Well, uh, you said you interview well. What yeah, I've gotten, almost, I've gotten almost every job I've ever interviewed for. What's your advice to people who may be in a similar situation? Like, what can they do to interview well? Yeah, be friendly, be relaxed, be open. Don't be casual, but be open, be funny, be humble, be relaxed. I, I mean, you're interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you. And mm -hmm. you're, you're checking them out and thinking, do I, is this a place I want to be at? Is this the kind of environment I want to be around? I would always, I always like to check out how long people have been there. You know, I always like to know that there's people who've been there 5, 10, 15, 20 years. That's a, that's a good sign. If there's a lot of turnover at a place, that's not such a good sign, you know. How do you check that out? Well, you can't always, but if you know someone who works there or like when I, when I came out here, they flew me out here. I was living in Oregon and they flew me out here for one night. And so I came in in the evening um, and uh, my, my boss and my boss's boss, my boss's boss's boss all took me out for dinner, um, you know, but I had a beer. You don't sit there and get sloshed in front of people that you're going to be interviewing with, obviously. You know, I went back to the hotel and hit the hotel bar and had several drinks after that, but not in front of, <laughs> not in front of them. You know, and then the next day I was just here all day and you always, I was here all day and I got to meet a lot of different people. And, and in meeting people, I said, oh, how long have you been here? Oh, I've been here 15 years. Oh, I've been here five years. I've been here 13, you know. And, okay. and just by kind of meeting people, you just kind of throw it in. How long have you been here? If you can do that. Um, and that's always a good sign. And then, you know, the biggest advice I can give anyone looking for a job, no matter what the job is, you wear a suit. You wear a tie and a jacket. At the very least, you wear hard-soled shoes. You don't show up in jeans and a T-shirt, no matter what the job is. And for this job, I showed up the night before for the dinner. I had I had slacks and a, and a, and a 
and a blazer. And then the next day I had a suit. And the guy, my boss, commented on it. He said, oh, do you have a different suit yesterday? Oh, no, you had a blazer and, and pants. And he, he recognized and he, he saw that I, I had two different outfits for the two different meetings. And then he went on to tell me how one of the guys for my job showed up in a flannel shirt and jeans. And wow. Newsflash, I got the job. <laughs> Not that person. So amazing. I, you know, my dad told me that a long time ago, even if it's internal, uh, you know, even if I were to go apply for a job, you know, within the company, I would show up to that interview in a suit. You, you just have to, when I went to interview for the postal job, I showed up in a suit. You, you have to show that you're serious about the, you know, getting a job and that you're professional and it, you know, as dumb as it may be, it impresses people. So just go with it. Always dress nice. Always dress yeah. nice. Yeah. That's interesting. Even if the job is casual. I mean, I can show up in a t-shirt and jeans and tennis shoes every day if I want. I don't, although I sometimes show up close. But uh, but when I was trying to get the job, yeah, I was wearing ties and a suit. And I, and I and I wear, I'm one of these geeks that wears fedoras too. So I also showed up in my fedora because it, you know, it finished off the look. So it, <laughs> it looked good. So, yeah. That's interesting. And confident. So, you want to be confident. Just like in a job, just like if, if I'm in the studio with you and I want to express confidence, you've got to do the same thing in an interview too. Well, that's interesting because you had just come off of what essentially was almost five years of some, of some pretty hard a pretty hard road. Yeah, underemployment and unemployment. So, you know, I was I was not doing exactly what I should be doing and I was not being utilized for what my skills were. So it was it's what I call underemployment. And I almost got myself I I pretty much did get myself fired from that phone Xbox job. <laughs> <laughs> I was there ten months and I couldn't stand it and I started just sending calls away. And I because I, I, I was so depressed too. I was just so unhappy. And the job was so horrible and it was so low pay. And you had people, you had grown men calling you and screaming at you about their uh, you know, black ops game not working right. And it's just like, really? This is what I'm doing. And so I started I started just sending calls away and not helping anybody. And I got caught doing that. And then and so I left. <laughs> well, but but think about this. I mean, for a minute, you, you really had a tough time there. It sounds like, and mm -hmm. then this, this job prospect comes up and you put on your a game mm -hmm. and you show up well-dressed, yeah. ready to impress. I mean, they flew me out here, so I was taking it very job. seriously. Right. Yeah. Now, how did, how did the job prospect present itself or how did you come across it? I'd actually applied for two other jobs with American public media. They have, we have, um, we own Marketplace, the show Marketplace, and that's produced in Los Angeles. So I, I had actually applied for two jobs out there, one of which I got to the phone interview stage, and then, and then the other one I never, never heard from them. They were, it was an editing job and a recording engineer job. So I was always keeping my eye on their websites, and then this job opened up, and I applied for it, and they contacted me, and, you know, they uh, first they set up a phone interview, uh, which we did, and, um, and immediately after that, my boss w went and grabbed his two bosses and then they called me up again an hour later and kind of did another phone interview with them. And then he called me back about an hour later and said, we're going to fly you out here. Uh, we picked a date to fly out. Uh, and then, like I said, they took me out to dinner. And then the next day I just spent the whole day here meeting everyone and learning about everything. 
and then they let me go. And then I, I was kind of like, oh, I kind of expected to be, since they flew me out, I kind of expected, well, they'll vet me and then they'll offer me the job at the end of the day. That's not what happened because everything's done by a committee. So there was no way it was going to happen that way. Um, they, the committee that I met with had to go back and discuss it and discuss all the candidates. So I was foolish to think that I would get it like immediately. Uh, oh. But I went back and about a week later, they called me and offered me the job. And then I was out here within three weeks. Um, we just agreed that it would take me about three weeks to get my stuff together and find an apartment. And, uh, and then I had to drive, you know, from Oregon to here. Did they offer any moving expenses? No, there was no moving expenses or anything like that. No, no sign-on bonuses. It still what is it, public radio, so. Right. <laughs> I, you were obviously trying to avoid a repeat of what happened to you before where you go and get the job. So was there any right. kind of guarantee like, no. you know? No, but I knew that um, there was no union situation. I, I've been in good unions and I've been in bad unions. Um, I was in a union in Chicago Public Radio and we were not in the correct union because we were on Navy Pier and because there's uh, territory issues with, with different unions in Chicago, the IBEW has control over Navy Pier. So anyone who has anything to do with, with electricity, even just plugging something in, you need to be, and you're working at Navy Pier, you got to be within IBEW. The problem with IBEW is that they're not a board op or a radio or a production union. They're an electrician's union. And so they had, uh, they had no idea what our pay scale should be. They had no idea how to negotiate for us, whatever. It wasn't, it wasn't the right union. In fact, I, call, I, I started calling around looking for other unions, and one of the unions I called told me about the territory issue and then ended up calling the, the IBEW. And then my rep, he called me up at 830 in the morning and said, what the fuck do you think you're doing? And I said, I'm trying to find someone who can do their jobs for us because you people can't. That's what the fuck I'm doing. And I hung up on him. <laughs> it's Chicago and you've got these assholes who want to throw their weight around and that's that's what was happening. And we were we were fed up with the union because it was a negotiation. Actually, I shouldn't even get into the details about it, but we were about to negotiate and nobody was happy. So I was just looking for other options. And then they called me up and basically threatened me. So, so that was a bad union. But then when I worked for <clears throat> uh, uh, Columbia College, I was in a part-time teachers union and that was a great union. We had a good pay. We had, we had benefits if we wanted them. It was a good thing. So, so there was no union situation here at NPR. Um, so I wasn't worried about the exact same thing to make a long story short too late. I wasn't worried about the exact same kind of thing. That was a union thing that happened to me out there with the, uh, S E I U that was the union because it was a state job. So everyone who worked for the university system worked for the state and the state's union was SEIU. Um, hmm. And just because of the rules and how long it takes to be vested, I just, that was a unique situation where I got screwed and I got ruined. So, so I, wow. I am a pro union person, uh, not to get off topic. I am generally a pro union person, but not every union is a good union. So. You, know, you got to have the right union in the right situation. The right union and not have a corrupt union or whatever, which, you know, happens. Um, yeah, you know, so, but no, I, I mean, so yeah, of course I was afraid that I would, I would drive out here and get an apartment. In fact, I got an apartment. My first lease was for two years and um, well, someone I was working with, someone who also was kind of new, not in my department, but I told him I, I 
gotten a lease for two years, he's like, oh, you're pretty confident, huh? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, I, I obviously anyone could come in and decide I'm fired, you know, at any time. Sure. But, but at this point, I've been here for a while and there would be a process. And, you know, if I was doing something wrong, they would, you know, if you get fired for not doing your job right, that's, that's kind of a failure of management too. Nobody, nobody stepped in and managed you correctly and kind of, you know, sent you down the correct path, you know? So, right. you know, I was, I was, there's no guarantees in life, but it just seemed like this was a good deal and, and this would be a lease on life, a second chance. And so I should do it. And, you know, I was very nervous and very green for the first year or so. And I made a few mistakes nothing that impacted anything too, too much, but, um, uh, like, <laughs> like one time I was supposed to upload, we have a show called performance today. And then we also have a show called symphony cast and mm -hmm. twice, and twice on, on Thursdays tonight, I, I'm supposed to upload the weekend version of performance today. And, and I did that tonight just fine. Uh, but twice in my first year, I, for some reason, confused it with symphony cast and ended up uploading symphony cast instead and then early the next morning stations are looking for these shows and they're not there so someone else had to scramble and get them up but if it had been really bad we might have i might have caused someone to miss their air window for the show you know they wouldn't have uh, played a new episode because i screwed up so you know as long as you don't make those mistakes too many times you know you're, mm -hmm. you're good and like i said earlier as long as you're friendly and helpful and you're not a pig you know, to, to, to female coworkers and stuff like that, you're, you, you're fine. Oh yeah. Definitely, definitely a, a key, uh, qualification. Yeah. Yeah. Don't, don't be a pig. Don't be a pig. I was dating this woman over the summer who lived in Chicago and she thought I was real nice and had a lot to offer or whatever. Uh, and she couldn't believe that I had hardly dated anybody since my divorce. And then also would ask me cause she had worked at Chicago city hall for 20 years. So she had a different experience. Oh my God. She was asking me, why not ask out somebody at work? <laughs> I said, because I don't want to have a conversation with HR about it. And I don't think that I need to go up to, you know, audio and recording is a very male dominated industry, especially on the technical side. And when I was a teacher too, you know, you, you, I had a couple young women who were students and I really made a point to not be a creep because someone else was already going to do that to them somewhere in their career. And I don't want to be the first guy that does that. And then here, w w women shouldn't have to come to work and be afraid that that creep down in mass control is going to ask them out again. You know? <laughs> they, right. It's going to cause a, a, a tension at work. Oh, yeah. We create all kinds of problems. And, and, you know, and you don't shit where you eat either, you know? And so. That's right. Yeah. You just, you don't, don't, you just don't pick. I mean, I understand. And also, like I said, that woman that worked at City Hall. So she had like reporters like pinching her ass and stuff like that. It was just. Oh, my God. A sexual harassment kind of environment. And they just, it was just normal, you know? But uh, here in progressive, you know, left-leaning media, we don't, we don't, we, we don't do that. <laughs> There's none of that. There's none of that. Well, let me let me ask you about uh, just from uh, let, let's just say simply from a weather perspective. I mean, you went from Los Angeles, yeah, to Oregon, yeah, then, then and back then to the to, Midwest, uh, yeah, and then deep in the heart of what I assume is uh, some pretty treacherous winters. The first winter I was here uh, was supposedly the worst winter in 30 years. There was snow on the ground straight, without a break, snow and icy roads 
from early November to late March. There was, it never melted and never let up. This past winter was pretty easy, but I grew up in Chicago. I grew up around Chicago in Illinois, so I grew up in Midwestern winters. I initially went to school in Boston. Uh, I went to boarding school in Wisconsin for four years. So I went to high school uh, in the middle of Wisconsin. So I had left to the West Coast partly to get away from the weather. And, you know, I, I initially moved to Oregon. Um, but, yeah, after a couple of years in L.A. and then two more years in Oregon, I was in L.A. for three years and then I was back up in Oregon for about 18 months unemployed and living with my parents. And then coming back here, yeah, it was a bit of a shock. Like, I pulled out my parka for the first time in five years, and I had to get used to it again. You know, I, my first year in L.A., I used to make fun of everyone, like, oh, you're cold? It's like 65, you know? But then, <laughs> but then the next year, I was just as cold as all the Californians. So it, it, it ruins you living out in that weather. And then so then that first year I moved back here, it was, a, yeah, it was a horrible winter. But, you know... It's a good job, and it's good people, and uh, I don't plan to go anywhere until I retire. And then once I retire, I'm going back to Oregon to to my parents' house because uh, huh. it'll be my house. So, well, let me ask you. I think there's going to be a lot of um, a lot of our audience that listens to this who mostly uh, are doing records, and they're probably struggling to do records, mm -hmm. and they're hearing your story, and they're possibly thinking. God, I mean, I know I'm hearing your story and I'm thinking, ooh, that's a that's an avenue I really haven't thought about pursuing. <laughs> so to your advice to the recording engineer that's doing exactly, you know, what we're all doing, making records, <clears throat> that wants to consider a slight shift uh, of career and go into public radio, uh, what should they do to prepare? Well, you know... <sighs> Like I said, a lot of that skill set you're gonna you're gonna bring and, and use. You're you're just gonna kind of adjust it for your situation. I mean, you know, when when we hire master control engineers, you know, it's just assumed you know how to make a recording. It's assumed you know how to use Pro Tools. You know, that's not even a question. Like when they started giving us production recordings, I was trained on the standards for the recording. But no one had to sit me down and say, okay, this is Pro Tools, and this is the edit window, and then this is the mix window, and then you press record over here. So it's been a smooth transition. I don't know if you need to, you know, prepare. You just know that you're going into something slightly different, but you're still, you're still going to need a knowledge of editing and recording and, and audio and what it is and how it works and... I think it's very easy to, I mean, I've done, I've done radio, I've done music recording, I've done voice recording, I've done sound for picture, I've done live sound. In fact, in the past couple of years, I've done some live sound, just, you know, Al Albini's got a, this website, uh, his, his studio's website, and there's a, there's a, there's a discussion forum, and uh, there's a bunch of us who've been on the, that forum for 10, 13 years, and at this point, we've all met in the real world, and we've put on, we've put out records, we've put out a compilation series, we've put on over ten festivals all across the United States and in the UK. We just had a festival in February in the UP where we go to this hotel up in the UP of Michigan, and we take it over for the weekend, and they have a ballroom, 
and we just have, I mean, everybody gets a room and then we just have bands play all fucking weekend. And, and so I've done, I've done some live sound at, at these events. So, well, I got to say to our listeners, uh, who are outside of the United States and we're talking about the UP in Michigan, we're talking about the upper peninsula. Yeah in Michigan. Yeah. So Next if you're confused, that's what we're saying. Yeah. The youp, we call it the youp. Um, yeah. yeah. So I've done live sound at those events. Um, you know, and I did a little bit of live sound in Chicago. So I've done, I've been, I'm, I'm like a jack of all audio, tra- jack of all audio trades, master of none. <laughs> um, but, but my, but those skills apply. All of those skills apply across all those different areas of audio. So, you know, your, your client, your, the most important things are your, your, your technical knowledge, your knowledge of your equipment and your your people skills, your client skills. And those are useful, you know, whether it's in a music studio or whether you're mixing a film or whether you're producing radio. All all of those skills are 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 needed and necessary and, and you're gonna use them. I guess it's a given you when you're in that environment, the significant difference between uh, you know, doing a a rock and roll record or a hip hop record compared to working in uh, public radio is, is uh, you certainly don't want to be using the F word every, you know, <laughs> right, right. Like yeah. it's, a, like it's a verb. Yeah. I mean, when I'm, when I, yeah, in radio and in post-production, you're in a more, when you're in a music studio, everyone who's there pretty much is a recording engineer or want to be recording engineer. There aren't, you know, you might have a receptionist, you might have an accountant, but, but basically everyone there is doing what you're doing. In in post production or in um, here in radio, I mean, there's 500 people that work in this building, and there's only a handful of us that are in broadcast operations. You know, there's sales, there's marketing, there's um, you know membership services, there's you know the news department. We have a we have a modern music service called the Current. We have uh, and then we have classical music. We don't do jazz for some reason. We do classical. And so it's more of an office environment. I mean, where there's studios, I have 48 studios in this building, but it's an office environment. So yeah, you, you want to be a little more professional. Like I said, I could show up in a t-shirt and jeans every day, but I don't. I, I show up in, I mean, I wear jeans every day probably, but you know, I wear nice shoes. I wear nice shirts. You know, sometimes I'll even wear a jacket. You know, I never wanted to be a suit. I never wanted to work in an environment where I had to wear a suit. And when I went to boarding school, I had to wear a tie and I had to wear a jacket. Now that I'm in media, sometimes I do show up in a jacket, nice pants, because I can. If that's how I feel like dressing, that's how I'll dress. But I don't have to dress that way, but it's nice to have that option. And as I get older, you know, then as I get older, I dress nicer because I'm getting older. So, you know, <laughs> the, the, the older you are, the nicer you should dress because otherwise you look like crap, you know? So, like, I'm, I'm not going to be a 60 year old man walking around in shorts. So you'll never, ever see that, you know? <laughs> mark your words. Yeah, mark. Well, and I don't now. I don't wear shorts now. I, I, I'm not a shorts guy, but so yeah, it is more professional. You want to be careful. You don't want to be a jerk. You don't want to use foul language too much. I mean, we, we're all adults. We all swear, you know. But, um, you know, one of the secrets of being an adult is that there are no adults. <laughs> that's, something, <laughs> that's something you figure out. If you, you should have figured out by your 30s, at least, that there actually are no adults and there actually is no one in charge. It's just this person's been given a position where he supposedly has power over you. But the reality is, is that, you know, 
nobody really knows what the hell they're doing. <laughs> Everybody's making this shit up as everyone's they go making up as going on. Sometimes I'll be in I'll be in a, in a in a control room or helping somebody out, and I'll get stumped, and I just throw my arms up and say, "I don't know how the fuck any of this shit works." I mean, I did that with you when we were getting set up when I couldn't figure out, you know, what my inputs were. Like, I don't know how this shit works. I have no idea. <laughs> Well, Grant, this has been awesome. It's good. it's it's good to catch up with you and and hear these stories. And um, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm I gotta say, I, I'm I'm really thrilled that, in spite of the fact that you went through this kind of you know down period in your life, you really kind of swung back up in a positive direction. And it's it sounds great. I'm, it's very inspiring, and it makes me want to kind of uh, peruse the uh, public radio job you know, <laughs> listings. Well, my only advice is that if you got a good thing going, don't give it up. You know, if you've got if you've got an income stream, if you've got a, a, you know a, a nice group of repeat clients, if you're if you're booked six months in advance, you know that's not something to give up because that's that's something hard to work to. And the one thing I really really learned about the the biggest thing I learned about taking that job at Oregon State was I should have never taken that job at Oregon State. Um, I should have stayed right where I was. I didn't have enough. I was getting burnt out on Chicago and I was starting to get burnt out on, on the station I was working for and the, and the people I was working for. And, uh, and, and now years later, those people are all gone and it's a whole new set of people. And if I had just stuck it out, I was also getting burnt and doing two jobs, but I guess what I'm trying to say is I didn't have enough respect for what I had. And I very easily gave it up. My wife, my ex-wife and I, when we had the opportunity to move to Oregon, you know, we got all caught up in the dream of it, you know. But I never considered that I could be laid off after four months no matter what. Because I was also told it was going to be my job for as long as I wanted it. I, I had a lot of smoke blown up my ass and I was vulnerable to it because we were getting burnt out on where we were. But in retrospect, I would never do that again. I would never, just, I would never give up this job for anything. I mean, you'd have to give me a contract and a, and a carload of money for me <laughs> to give this up for real, because I have got a long-term thing going here. And the longer I'm here, the more invested and the more entrenched I am here. And I think it's the same for anybody else. I mean, Steve Albini is never going to get up and leave electrical audio because he's invested so much of his life into building that up that, you know, he, he knows never to leave it until it's, until it goes away. You know, I mean, maybe someday it'll go away, but that's different than giving it up. I have a coworker here who is a, um, a champion home brewer. And, and, and he had been here for about 10 years, but this was his first job out of college. And he has a wife and they have a house and they now have two children. And he finally had an opportunity to go off on his own and open up his own brewery. But before there, he was able to do that, he had an opportunity to go work at someone else's brewery and be the brewer for this other brewery and be there through the spring and into the summer. And then once he got his place up and going, then he'll move to his place. And I, I admire him for doing that. He's only 30. So, you know, I, I would have never done it, no matter how good of a home brewer I am, uh, which I'm not. But when I looked at him doing that and making that choice, I just thought back to when I left Chicago 
and got completely screwed and tumbled around for five years. You know, I ended up on my feet, but it also set me back in a lot of ways. And, and like I said, it ruined me financially. I had to start all over again. You know, I had to start saving all over again. I had to start everything all over again. So he tells me on the last day he's leaving, I, I, we're talking about the brewery he's going to, and I still think it's temporary. And I said, well, great. When, when do you get a, to open up your new brewery? And he said, well, that all fell through. <laughs> uh. So he's lucky in that this temporary brewery will be a permanent job for him. But I was like, in my head, I was like, you see, you see, there's, you, you give up what you have because you think you're going to something better and you can totally get fucked. So I, you know, sure, look into other avenues, look into other opportunities. But if, if someone out there, if you've got a good thing going, don't fuck it up. Just, just hold on to it. Exactly. <laughs> just respect what you have, you know? Respect what you have. That's a good, that's a yeah. good parting thought. I like that. Yeah. Respect what you have. Well, thanks. Thanks a lot. It was fun. I appreciate the interest, and um, I'm looking forward to hearing it. Appreciate you taking the time to do it. Oh, no problem. All right. Thanks, man. All right, man. Take care. See ya. Bye-bye. All right. There it is. Graham Hick on the Working Class Audio Podcast, Master Control Engineer at Minnesota Public Radio. Hope you enjoyed that. I certainly did. I definitely got a few tips out of that, and I'm going to go peruse the uh, NPR job listings a little more and see if there's any cool ideas out there anyways well there's the music from cliff truesdale so we're out of time want to thank cliff want to thank chuck smith want to thank cole williams thank you guys and want to thank uh, our sponsors gearsleds.com audio technica focal monitors and universal audio and hey obviously i want to thank you all i appreciate you listening take care hey i know many of you are aware of this but for those of you that aren't aware Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at Gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio... This is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.